In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Good morning. My name is Ernest Graham. I'm a canon missioner for the diocese, which means I work very closely with the bishop with a lot of our churches, and I'm delighted to be with you here this Sunday. Uh, my apologies for not being in the pulpit or the middle. My microphone's not working, so I thought maybe the live streamers might want to be able to hear the sermon. Hopefully. Maybe. God willing. <laughs> I want you to imagine what it was like for those disciples in, at the time when Jesus gives them this very hard news that is in our gospel lesson today. Now, don't, don't imagine yourself as Peter or James or John, one of the big three, or, or even Judas, because he's probably got other things on his mind at this time. But, but maybe, maybe be Bartholomew or Thaddeus or one of the women who was always there but whose name doesn't get recorded. So imagine yourself as a disciple at this time with Jesus. Now it has been an amazing time. They have fed thousands of people with just a handful of bread and loaves and fishes. They have witnessed more healings um, happen. And as they were traveling along, they were in the town of Caesarea Philippi, which if you go there, there's this, it, within the mountain, there's carved little grottos for, for, with statues of all of these other gods that people in the Roman Empire pray to. And so it's in that space and amongst the trees and the flowing river beside him that Jesus stops and does something very different with his disciples. He says, who do people say that I am? And they think about it and, and somebody says, well, some people think that you are a prophet. And, and some, think, some people think that maybe you're John the Baptist because you know we hear news that maybe he died, but maybe you're John the Baptist. Um, and, and then some people think that maybe you're Elijah having come back. And Jesus looks at him and says, yes, but who do you say that I am? Now, as a disciple standing there, you might be thinking, is he talking to me? What do I say? What, what, what do I believe? What, what, do I dare say what's on my mind? But Peter, who's always the first person to jump in, jumps in and says, you are the Messiah. You are the anointed one of God that we have been hoping for and praying for and waiting for. You are the Messiah. And he's right. Peter gets the answer right. And, and I try to picture the, the image of Jesus' face as Peter makes this proclamation, this declaration that you're the Messiah. Is there a sense of relief, of, of wonderment, of, of amazement in this moment? Maybe there is. But then there's a turn in his expression. As he tells us, the disciples, don't tell anybody yet. And then he proceeds to talk to them. And in my mind's eye, I imagine him, them sitting down because when you get really big, hard news, you kind of sit down for this. So I imagine him motioning for them to sit down and saying, we've been planning and preparing to go to Jerusalem. We have lots of expectations of what this is going to be like, but let me tell you what's going to happen. I'm going to be rejected by the religious leaders, the chief priests, the elders, the scribes. I'm gonna be handed over to the authorities. They're gonna kill me. Some of the gospels actually go up so far as to say, I'll be hung on a cross. I'm gonna die. 
and on the third day I'll rise again. Imagine being a disciple as Jesus breaks this really hard news because their mind can't fathom it. They just had this moment where he confirmed that yes, indeed, he is the Messiah, the one that they've been waiting for. They should be excited and celebrating this moment. And how in this moment, dear Jesus, can you say to us that we're gonna go to Jerusalem and you're gonna die? How can you do that? And maybe as the disciple sitting there, you're thinking, what do I say? But of course, Peter being Peter, he steps in first and says, no, don't let it be. You can't do this. If you're going to die in Jerusalem, let's go someplace else. Let's do something else, but don't die. We just, we just came to the realization that you're the Messiah. But Jesus says, and I, and I can't imagine the expression on his face, but, but he says, get behind me, Satan. Your minds are set on human things, not on divine things. And as a disciple witnessing this encounter, you think, whoa, whoa, what just happened here? You know, they've seen Jesus rebuke the scribes and Pharisees that, that really opposed him. They've seen Jesus rebuke the winds in a storm and say, peace be with you. And the storm subsided. But he's never rebuked one of them like this. But here he is saying to Peter, get behind me, Satan. <coughs> so here we are in this, this moment of a confrontation. And I think sometimes it's good to kind of step aside and ask the question, what is really happening here? Why is it going down this way? Now you can imagine from Peter's perspective, Peter, is, is a little bit bolstered up by this, this experience of, of making the claim that he's the Messiah. Peter, from his perspective, is probably thinking, I left my job. I left my house, my home, my family. I left everything behind to come and follow you. And along the way, we have witnessed the most amazing things. We have seen you walk on water. We have watched you heal people by the thousands, feed the hungry by the thousands. We have witnessed you touch the people who are most untouchable, the lepers, and make them clean and welcome them back in. You have spoken and taught with such authority and clarity that it's almost as if we can hear God present among us. We have left everything for you. How in this moment, when we know you as the Messiah, how can we let you die? Why wouldn't we stand up? Why wouldn't we defend you? Why wouldn't we find another way? Can't there be another way? You can imagine as a disciple hearing Peter speak up. You can imagine the emotions and the feelings that are going inside and probably think, yeah, why are you doing this, Jesus? Why do you say that now, here, at this time, when we're so close to everything that we've been hoping for? Now imagine, if we can, what was Jesus thinking in that moment? What was he feeling? And I'm, I don't have the mind of God, so I don't know. But, but, but as near as I can tell, Jesus, who is fully human and fully divine, Jesus, who is fully human, um, is very emotional in this moment. He has just bared his soul. He has just told them that the worst thing that you can imagine happening is really about to happen. 
And the same Jesus might be thinking about how when he was baptized, he heard his heavenly father say, you are my beloved child and you I am well pleased. And he went into the wilderness where he dwelt with that. You know, the, the word Messiah means to be anointed. He knew in his baptism that he was anointed to be that Messiah. And no doubt in the wilderness, he was tempted to figure out what do you do with that? But he comes out of his experience of temptation and he begins to go out into the world proclaiming that the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God is very near. It is among us. It is inside you. It is that close. You can just taste it. You can just feel it. And, and he shows what it means to be a Messiah, not by raising an army, but by healing people by preaching and teaching forgiveness and mercy and kindness and compassion and love. There was never anything in any of his actions, any of his words or deeds where Jesus gave the indication that he was going to do what other messiahs would do. Peter and the disciples are thinking that a messiah is going to do just like David did when he was anointed and go and become a king and establish a kingdom and overthrow the invading empires. David overthrew the Assyrians. They imagined Jesus overthrowing the Roman Empire and establishing a time of peace and prosperity. But there was nothing ever in Jesus's life and teaching and his actions that showed that he was going to take the world by force. He's showing a very different way and they're not ready to hear that. So I can imagine in this moment when Peter speaks up that it is very emotional. And what we have in this situation is a clash of misunderstanding, genuine misunderstanding. They don't know the mind and heart of Jesus. They're just catching up with the reality of what they know right now. And he, he's been thinking about this every step of the journey. Where is this going? It reminds me of those situations in our life where we have those moments of, of confrontation that happen because somebody shares their truth, but the other person doesn't know or understand, and there's a, there's a clash of miscommunication and misunderstanding. I think of the man who learns from the doctor that he, is, he has stage four cancer. His cancer has returned. It was in remission for five years, but it has returned. And the news is, is that it's already spreading through his body. And he comes to his family and he says, I have cancer, it's returned, it's starting to spread. I'm not gonna fight it this time. I'm gonna let it happen. And you can imagine the family just receiving this news, thinking to themselves and saying out loud, but no, no, this cannot be. You can't do that. You beat it last time. You can beat it this time. What if there's a cure? What if there's something right around the corner that will make it better? Can't you please, please? They don't want to lose him. We have these confrontations of misunderstanding. I think about the woman who is successful in her work. Um, she's worked hard. She, she makes a good income. She helps provide for her family. She is, she's, been, she's been doing things, but she comes to a point in her life where she realizes this isn't who I am. This isn't what I really need to be doing with my life. I can't spend the rest of my life doing this thing that even though it's prosperous and good, I just can't do it. And so she makes the decision to go and go off to college. And she tells her family that 
she is going to go to college, she's going to leave her job and go in a new direction. And you can imagine, because they don't know what's been going on inside of her, that they're shocked and stunned. And what does this mean for us? And we depend upon you and for the income that you have. And, and what does this change mean for us and for our family? And again, you have that clash, that conflict that's happening over misunderstandings. I think about the young person um, who wrestles with themselves and comes to the realization that they're trans and that they want to be authentically themselves. And they, they gather up whatever courage they have to tell their mother and father that, that this is who I am. Um, and it takes every ounce of courage to say that, not knowing how they're going to respond. And in some cases, the family welcomes them. And in other cases, no, no, how can this be? You can't do this. You don't know what this means. Maybe this is just a phase. What if you tried this? What if you did that? What if, what if, what if? Again, somebody is, is bringing a, a tender-hearted truth to the others, and, and, and it causes that, that, that confrontation in that moment. These confrontations are very real. They're very human. They're very emotional. And most often, in those moments, it often doesn't go well. Because when we're in those different spaces, it's very hard for us to understand, and it's very hard to stop in those moments and, and try to understand each other. So it, it often happens that in those moments, we, we do come to heads with each other. But that's not the end of it, of course. There's more to the story on that, and there's time to rebuild on that. I think that's what it was like for Jesus. I think that he was being incredibly vulnerable and open with his disciples when he said, this is going to happen. And, and I imagine that in Jesus' mind, he has looked at this from every angle that you can imagine. And he knows that his way, the way of God that he has come to embody and enflesh, is a way of peace that this world does not know or understand. He refuses to establish peace through violence or through war or through any kind of coercion and force. This kind of peace that God desires and longs from only comes from love. It only comes from compassion. And Jesus knows, and he's experienced this all along the way in his ministry. He's met that confrontation. He knows that at some point, it's going to come down to this. It's going to come down to a confrontation between him and an empire and an emperor and kings who only know how to establish their idea of peace by controlling others, by establishing it by force or war or, or, or violence. It was always going to come to this confrontation and in Jesus' heart and mind in this moment, he's ready for it. I think of Dr. Martin Luther King um, on April 3rd, 1968. I think I got the year right. Um, he was in Memphis. And by, by this time, he had been embodying nonviolence as a means of fighting for justice and, and was receiving pushback from every angle on that. And, and it was getting dark. And in his sermon that day at that church in Memphis, he looks out, and I don't know if there's a moment of clarity that he either re receives divinely or if it's just the logistics of this is going to happen. He says, I can see, the I'm, I'm at the top of the mountain, I can see the promised land, but I may not get there with you. He knows he may not live. And he says, I, I would love to have a long life. Everybody would love to have a long life. But if that doesn't happen, 
I'm going to do God's will. I think of that experience because it was just 24 hours later that he was assassinated. Was it divine revelation that, that gave him that clarity in that moment? Or was it just the reality that if you truly embody a message of peace that is grounded in the kind of peace that God desires and longs for, you are going to come at odds with a world that does not believe in that. And that's a terrifying thing and it's a reality. But Jesus faces that in the moment. Go back to that moment with the disciples as Jesus confronts and rebukes Peter in this way. If they were clear-minded, if, if it were Bartholomew or Thaddeus or the unnamed lady that, disciple that was there, somebody could have spoken up in that moment and said, wait a second, whoa, 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 you're both really emotional about this. Let's take a step back. Jesus, what did you mean? when you said that this was going to happen? And what did you mean by how after three days you were going to rise again? You know, our minds can't fathom resurrection because all we know in this world is that at the end of life is death. And here Jesus is telling them he's going to rise again. So I don't even know that they even heard him say that when he said that he's going to rise on the third day. I think they were so emotional about the, the violent that was about to happen. But, but you can imagine if you could just step aside and say, help us to understand where you are. Peter, help us to understand where you are. How can we do this differently? Now, I don't think in that moment that anybody had the capacity to do that because this was so charged with electricity and mo motion. But on the other side of those three days, on the other side of that resurrection, we see things differently. Jesus has talked about rising again, but after the resurrection, we have seen him rise again. After the resurrection, we have seen that death no longer has dominion over us, that something new is being broken into the world. And it enables a multitude of possibilities that we couldn't have imagined before, but maybe we can now. That's what resurrection does. Resurrection absolutely breaks open new possibilities into the world that weren't there before. All we knew was death. Now we know there's something more. Amen.